0: 99% in a city of 19 million, 99% of those people do not know Jesus and his grace and his kingship, and that is why Mustard Seed is there, and, uh, and I will tell you that, that there are a few things that actually kind of encourage me more about the Spirit and his work than getting to hear about some of the stuff that's going on in Japan, a country that is so distant and dark um, when it comes to Jesus, but... Um, but the church is there, not just mustard seed, there are some other churches, but mustard seed, the stuff that's happening there through the, the church planners. there are people regularly coming in that church who have never heard the gospel and they're getting to hear it proclaimed to them. And they are, through that, coming to know Jesus. And, and there's some really cool things happening in Osaka. And, and it's actually, it's a, a ministry near and dear to my heart because Jay Greer that he mentioned there, the, the lead pastor there and lead planner, Jay and his wife, Caitlin, are are my cousins, and, uh, and so is a, a couple others on that team, Ethan Greer and, and Audrey, and so um, love, love that ministry for more than one reason, but I, I want us just to take a minute to pray for Japan and pray for the church planting team there and pray for our team as they spend time with them. Let's do that. <clears throat> Dear Father, as I watched that video for the first time, I was struck by the fact struck by the fact that the only difference between me and all the other people walking around that train station is not my goodness, my um, right living. <laughs> the difference is you, and the difference is that somebody told me about you, and that is a gift I don't deserve. That is a gift that none of us in this room deserve, but we are so grateful for it. It is our life, and uh, I pray that for the people in Japan. Lord, you deserve their worship. And so I pray that you would raise up workers for the harvest there. That you would put it on people's hearts and minds to, to go and bring the gospel. And that you would open hearts in Japan. I pray that you would strengthen the team of mustard seed there. That you would give wisdom to the leadership. That you would empower them in their ministry. I pray for our team in Sunnybrook that you would use us to be an encouragement, that our brothers and sisters from here would encourage our brothers and sisters from there and strengthen them, and, uh, and that more and more ministry and, and, and work for your kingdom would take place as a result of it. May you be honored and glorified in Osaka and in Nagoya. I ask you that in the name of your son Jesus, amen. We are in Matthew 18 today. The very first, the this, this first six verses of that chapter, I just want to start today by just reading all the way through it, and then we'll kind of walk our way through it as we go along here in just a minute. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whatever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We've been in a section for some time here talking about kingdom citizens, what it looks like for people as followers of Jesus to live in this new kingdom that he has set up. And, and, and we come to um, what, what a lot of people call the, the fourth major discourse of Matthew. It's this kind of little mini section, chapters 18, 19, and 20, in, in which this idea will come up over and over again describing the interpersonal relationships of people within the kingdom, this is how citizens in the kingdom of God relate to one another in the church, in community, and so we'll we'll see this throughout the next three chapters. Uh, many have said that these six verses we just read—they're not just kind of the the intro to this section, but that the the theme in these six verses will work itself out throughout the next three chapters. Whether explicitly or implicitly, it will be kind of the underlying current, and so it is good for us to get our minds and hearts around the message in these verses today before we move on in the next several weeks. Um, so let's, let's start back at the beginning. We'll, we'll kind of walk step by step through the text and talk about it a little bit. Verse 1 says this, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest? This is a really big question for the disciples, one that is on their mind a lot. And, and let's just kind of make sure we remember, when Matthew uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, he's not necessarily talking about heaven. That's his phrase for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and, and the disciples, just like every other Jew in the first century, when they hear kingdom of God, they're not thinking just something way in the future at the end of the time. They're thinking about a physical kingdom being set up in the nation of Israel. Israel restored, brought back to prominence, brought back to her former glory. And so when they ask Jesus, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, that's what they mean. Jesus, in the next few months, when you set up your great kingdom in Jerusalem, which one of us is going to be your right-hand man. Which one of us is going to be at the next seat of power along with you? That is the question they're asking here. It's, it's uh, probably a question that was um, prompted by the Transfiguration episode a few, uh, few texts ago. See, in the Transfiguration, you remember, Jesus goes up on a mount and he is transfigured, but he doesn't take with him all the disciples. He just takes Peter, James, and John. And this may have been a moment where the disciples start to think, oh, it it appears there's some sort of hierarchy working its way out here, and the debate is on as to who's going to get to the top of that pecking order. And so they ask him this question. It's the first time this question is recorded, at least, in the Gospels. It's not the last time it will come up. In fact, just two chapters after this, Uh, James and John the brothers will come will kind of go around the disciples back and come to Jesus with their mom which is a real cool thing to do by the way with their mom and they'll go to Jesus and say hey here's the thing we want when you set up your new kingdom we would like for us doesn't matter which one but we want both of us to sit on your right and on your left in glory and the disciples, when they discover this, when the rest of them hear about it, they're furious. My guess is not so much because they're mad at the selfishness of James and John, but they're mad that they thought of it first. And so Jesus steps in and corrects them there. Again, but, but it... It continues, that doesn't end for them They are obsessed with this idea And continue to think about it All the way up until the last night before Jesus dies He's sitting around the table with them At the last supper And Luke tells us, in the middle of it As Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die tomorrow I'm going to be handed over To the religious leaders and die In the middle of it, Luke says Another fight breaks out amongst them As to who is the greatest Actually, you'll notice this pattern Quite often that the disciples they're arguing about being great usually comes right on the heels of Jesus talking about how he's going to die. That is, it seems like every time Jesus is talking about lowering and laying down his life, they're only thinking about promoting their own. It's sad, and it's silly, and it's ridiculous, and it's a lot like us. Let's not get confused, this, this desire for greatness, this longing to be significant, to be important, to stand out and be on top is not unique to the disciples. No, no, that, that is a desire that runs deep in the heart of every human being, including you and I. From the beginning of time, it has been the heart of people to move themselves towards greatness, to move themselves towards the top, to be known and important. That drives the world we live in. That drives people as they move forward. And it is something that starts in us at a very, very young age. My daughter Ella um, was in her first little small group last year on Wednesday nights in a kindergarten girls small group. And, and that, that small group just happened to be led by Pam Longin and my aunt, Julie Weiss. And, and so they were in there leading on the first night, and, and they're kind of going around the group introducing themselves. And, and when it got to Ella, Ella, you know, told everybody who she was, but then she was also very clear to make it known that uh, Julie is my aunt, which means that she likes me more than all of you guys. And, uh, and Julie tried to kind of step in and, you know, hey, I do like you, Ella, but honestly, I like, I like everyone here, Ella. All of you guys are kind of important to me, which prompted one girl to ask, well, what about me? Do you love me? And Julie said, yes, of course. I mean, I, listen, I may not even know all of you yet, but I love you guys. I love all of you guys. I care all about, about all of you. And, and it was this kind of beautiful moment at the beginning of their group to kind of start off on those things until Ella poked her head in again and said, uh, yeah, but you love me most, right, because I'm, we're family, right? <laughs> See, this is kind of the issue. We, we're all told when we're little kids that everyone is special, Everyone is important and unique in their own way, and we all get that, and we're cool with that, as, as long as I'm just a little bit more special than everybody else, and as long as that's kind of clear to everyone else. This runs deep in us, the desire to be great, and it's a desire that has caused a lot of destruction in this world, and a lot of brokenness, and a lot of disunity and discord, people running after the top, trampling over each other in the process, and so of course, Jesus is going to step in here and tell his disciples, stop it, don't worry about being great, stop trying to be great. Actually, that's not what he says. It's kind of surprising In fact, in all three episodes, when the disciples argue about who's going to be the greatest, Jesus never steps in and says, don't try to be great. Instead, he says this, verse 2, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus doesn't tell them, don't try to be great. It would seem that perhaps the reason we all long for greatness so much is, is that that might be a hardwired into us. That God, who is great and made us in His image, put that longing in us. Jesus' problem with the disciples is not that they want to be great, the problem, he says, is that they do not understand what greatness is the problem is their definition of it they completely confuse what it is and therefore go about it in all the wrong ways the disciples are convinced that greatness consists of in status in being known in clout and in power and in authority and being at the top of the totem pole in being that guy or that girl that when you walk in the room, the heads turn and everyone says, there he is, there she is. That is greatness. And, And so Jesus looks over and he sees this little kid playing in the dirt, calls him over to himself. Jesus points at him, standing there in the middle of the disciples and says this, This is how to be great. Now, don't get confused here. Don't read our culture's view of children onto Jesus' statement. See, our culture actually has a pretty high view of children. You could argue maybe too high. Sometimes We view children as cute and endearing and, and often families and parents kind of build their whole uh, lives around their kids, center their worlds around the kids, making decisions based on what the kids want or what they think would be good for the kids. That's kind of how we work and, and in our marketing and in our advertising campaigns, kids are often front and center because we like kids, we're drawn to this thing in them and they are kind of seen as the ideal of what we all ought to be in our hearts. That we all ought to be, you hear this phrase, a child at heart. And so often, when we read this phrase, we go to kind of a different place, and we think what Jesus is saying is that you ought to have like a childlike innocence, or a childlike purity, or a childlike, here's the big one, faith. Jesus says that if you want to be great, if you want to be in the kingdom, you need a childlike faith. It's not actually what he's saying, because that's not what they're thinking when they see a kid in front of them. Their view and their culture of children was a little bit different than ours, in some ways better, in some ways worse, but, but they, didn't, they didn't hold children up quite as highly as we did. It's not that kids weren't loved. They were loved in their families, but they also knew their place in their families, Kids in the family structure sat at the bottom of the totem pole. They had no say in the direction of the family. They had no no input into what the family was going to do. And outside of the family, like in the public sphere, they were completely insignificant. No rights, no privileges, no clout, no authority, no status. Kids Needed to know their place, to know where they belong. This is exemplified perfectly just one chapter later when a number of parents try to bring their kids to Jesus to have him pray for them and lay his hands on them and bless them. And the disciples, you know how this goes, the disciples step in and rebuke them. Turn away these kids and their parents because that's what kids were. Kids were those people that you keep out of the way of important figures. Jesus, of course, rebukes his disciples for this, but but this is their understanding of children. And this, Jesus says, is what greatness is. True greatness is lowering yourself, Jesus says. True greatness is working your way to the bottom of the totem pole. True greatness is a lack of status and a refusal to clamor for the top. True greatness is humbling yourself. You've heard this story, I know, but do not breeze past or overlook how crazy that statement is. Jesus might as well be telling his disciples that up is down, that the sky is green, because this goes completely against everything they have ever known about greatness. Everything they have ever seen or been told or been shown about greatness, Jesus speaks directly against right here. Is it any wonder that even after he tells them this, that they will continually get in fights about these things? It's because he might as well be speaking a different language. They can't even get their minds around it. And I would argue that that statement he makes is no less shocking in our culture today. In fact, if you're not a little bit taken back by what Jesus has just said, if it does not shock you just a little bit, I would, I would argue that means you probably don't fully understand all that he's saying here. More on that in just a bit. But for now, let's move through the rest of this text. In verse 5, Jesus continues, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whatever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So we end on a light note this morning. Jesus continues here, and and these two verses honestly can get a little bit confusing, because he continues talking about these little ones, and, and whoever receives a little child like this, or whoever causes a little one to stumble, those kinds of things. And so it looks like he's still talking about kids, but most commentators will tell you, no, no, that's not actually what's happening. That he has switched the meaning of children here. He just told us that those who are great are the ones who humble themselves like children. And so now, in the rest of this chapter, when you see him talking about the little ones or little children, that's who he's referring to humble disciples who have lowered themselves like children, talking about humble followers. And he says that when you receive someone who is least prominent, a humble follower like that, when you receive one of them, when you honor them, when you lift them up, he says, that's the same as receiving me. It's a sign that you get me, that you get my heart. And even that act of honoring the humble is a sign of humility. But then he goes on to say that, that if, if receiving Jesus, or if receiving a humble disciple is like receiving Jesus, then causing one of those little ones, one of those disciples to fall into sin, and not just like, you know, a mistake here or there, but causing them to enter into a lifestyle, and causing them maybe even to, to walk away from Jesus, he says, that is tantamount to rejecting me. And, and, and if you are walking that path, a life path that, that pulls people away from Jesus, better to drown in the bottom of the sea than to continue down that path. Verse six is actually kind of a transition verse because it it actually fits kind of between our text today and our text next week, which will enter all into sin and how we deal with sin in ourselves and in others. But as I said... Most commentators will tell you that the theme that we just saw spelled out in this passage here of humility is going to work itself out through the rest of the chapters. That We're going to see this idea of humility either explicitly or implicitly coming out over and over again when Jesus talks about kingdom relationships. It is huge. So big is humility of the kingdom that, that actually there's a second surprise for us in this text. The first surprise is this, when Jesus says greatness consists of lowering yourself. Greatness consists of sitting at the bottom. That's the first kind of shock for us. The second one is when Jesus answers a question that they're not actually even asking. See, their question is, who's going to be great in the kingdom? And Jesus answers that question. But before he gets there, you may have noticed it. he answers another question. Not just who's going to be great in the kingdom. He answers this one, how do we even get into it? Jesus says, you're assuming that you're all in. Don't assume that. Look at verse 2 again. truly. I'm sorry, verse verse three. And truly I say to you, unless you turn, that is change, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. See, what Jesus is saying here is humility is not just the key to greatness in my kingdom. It's a prerequisite for entering it in the first place. It's the gateway in it's essential it's the only way to get there he uses this phrase you will never enter the kingdom without it that's a strong statement that sentence actually that phrase will never enter the kingdom is only ever said by jesus two other times the first is in matthew 5:20 when jesus says i tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven the second one comes in John 3, 5 when he's talking to Nicodemus and he says to him, unless a person is born of, spirit, of water and of spirit, they cannot enter my kingdom. Both big and strong statements, but, but those ones honestly make sense. The first one is a really big, broad picture Describing what the kingdom is like, in essence That the kingdom is not a kingdom of sin and wickedness It is a kingdom of righteousness So, of course, righteousness is a key to being a part of that kingdom Righteousness is huge So it's a broad kind of description of the life of someone within the kingdom The second one in John is describing conversion That you cannot come into my kingdom unless you are born again born of water and spirit, converted. And so that makes sense too. One is a broad term. One is a term describing conversion. This here, though, is really interesting because this one he's getting really, really specific about one unique characteristic, humility. Unless you are humble, you will never enter the kingdom. He doesn't say that about things like kindness. Unless you are kind, you will never enter my kingdom. Unless you are honest, you will never enter my kingdom. No, no, just this one here. Unless you are humble, unless there is humility, you will never enter. Why? Why of all the traits that Jesus could have mentioned now, why does he zero in on this one, on the idea of being humble? Truthfully, if our eyes were open as we're reading through the scriptures we shouldn't be surprised this idea that humility and a humbling of oneself this idea that that is essential in approaching God runs from the start to the finish throughout the Bible that humility is the key to coming to him and that pride will always keep you from him what is the very first temptation that separated us from God in the first place If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Pride, you can move yourself up. And my heart, or my hope, was actually to kind of list off a number of different scriptures from front to back, showing you how true this is, but we don't actually have the time. But there is one verse, James 4 through 6, that I think really, or 4-6, which really does kind of encapsulate the Bible's perspective on humility and on pride. Says this, James 4-6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That, in a nutshell, is the Bible's description of humility and view of it, that in our humble God gives us grace, but if you stand in pride, God is against you, and you cannot come to him. That's all through scripture. And then Jesus, actually, by his own life and ministry and teaching, highlights this even further. What's his first words when he steps up onto the hillside to preach the Sermon on the Mount? First words out of his mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit, the broken, those down at the bottom, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And a sentence or two later, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The Beatitudes are really all that, this kind of reversal of those who are down here come to the top. And Jesus will continually say things like, the first will be last, but in my kingdom, those who set themselves at the back, they will be the ones who move to the front. Over and over and over again, he rails against the Pharisees because, he says, they long to have the seats of honor at banquets and at feasts. Because they love to be greeted with these titles of significance when they're on the street corners. They love to be noticed. And he says, do not be like them. But he doesn't just talk about it. He models it. When on his last night with his disciples, he gets down on his hands and feet and begins to wash the, the feet of his disciples, taking part in this task that was reserved only for the lowest of the low, only for the people on the bottom rung of the ladder, only those were the ones who washed his feet. And Jesus says, this is what I'm doing for you, and this is what you ought to do for one another. Jesus even describes the purpose of his coming in terms of Humility. Mark 10, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why humility. That's why humility is so important for entering the kingdom, because, because this is a kingdom that is built on humility, that is, established on and is centered around a humble king who, as Kyle read to us from Philippians 2, lowered himself, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself, humbled himself, taken on the very nature of a slave and died for you and I on a cross. That is the foundation of this kingdom, this king who lowers himself. And so it only makes sense that all his subjects would do the same. But there's another reason that humility is so critical for entering the kingdom of God and that's probably best described to us in a story that Jesus tells in Luke 18 I actually referenced this the last time I got to preach Luke 18 Jesus tells the story of these two men who go up to the temple to pray one is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector And Jesus says that these two men went to the temple and the Pharisee got down and began to pray, oh God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortionists and adulterers and even this tax collector over here. I give a tenth of everything I have. I fast regularly. I pray regularly. I am righteous. Thank you for that. And Jesus says, though, that the tax collector Stood at a distance, wouldn't even look up, but beat his breast and said, Oh, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says in Luke 18, 14, to end that story, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, that is, declared righteous, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Don't miss what he's saying there. Don't confuse what he's talking about. He's not saying that the reason God loves the humble person, the reason God justifies the humble is because humility is endearing. Because God just really likes those kind of aw shucks who me people with that that beautiful attitude and those are the kind of people that you want to be around and so that's why God loves it. No, 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 that's not what he's getting at. What he's saying there is that humility enables a person to recognize their true condition. That humility allows us to see God clearly for who he is and therefore to see myself in light of that and to see my great need before him. It's humility that enables me to see that I am nothing and that I bring nothing to this relationship with God except for my own brokenness and my own sinfulness, that I do not have the ability within myself, that I do not have the goodness or the strength or the power to push myself into the kingdom of God, that that is only something he can do. As Colossians 1 says, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. But if my whole life is centered around moving myself to the top, if my whole life is is all about building up my own little kingdom, about becoming great in the eyes of people, about becoming important and significant, if I build my whole life around that, I'll never be able to see that truth, how truly needy and broken and dependent I am. Jesus said as much in John 5, 44, he was arguing with the Pharisees and he says this, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You catch that? He's saying that pride and the desire to be known and significant and out in front is irreconcilable with faith. You cannot believe properly. You cannot trust properly and live a life full of pride. They don't go together. Humility is the only way in. It's essential. It's foundational. It's critical, and yet it does not come easy to us. It is so hard, no matter how much we know this to be true, so hard to reject a life of pride and a life of self-advancement. And The reason why is this. Because from the day that you and I were born, from the moment we took our first breath, stepped onto this earth... The entire world has been telling us from that day on and continues to tell us to this day that the whole point of your life, the whole reason and purpose you are here is to move up, that the goal is self-advancement. The goal is the bettering of yourself. The goal is to move forward, to get to the top. And your parents told you that, and your teachers told you that, and your TV told you that, and billboards told you that, and everything around us has told us that the point is to get to the top, to move yourself forward and ahead. And I I explain it to our college students like this that most of the world, for lack of opportunity, or lack of giftedness, or lack of drive, will spend pretty much their whole life down here at the bottom, longing to be able to get up this thing, wishing that they could be like those up at the top. Most will never do it. But there are a handful of people more than a handful. There's, there's a number of people, probably even a number of people in this room, who because of their gifts and because of their drive or their work ethic and, and some maybe a little bit of luck on the way, who will find themselves able to begin moving up this ladder. A number of you, even in this room, will at least get this high. You will find yourselves successful in your careers, known for your expertise, building up wealth and building up income and building up uh, authority and a reputation. But for most of the people who get here, and college students, I tell them this, they may not know it yet. Some of you guys are here and you've experienced it. Most of the people who start making their way up, when they get here, they discover that there is still this, deep down, this discontentment residing in their heart. This feeling that there ought to be more. And every day, the world will whisper to you when you stand on this step, that the answer to that discontentment lies just one step higher. That if you'll just get a little bit better career That if you'll just make a little bit more money That if you'll just get a few more letters behind your name That greatness awaits you And that will solve your problems And that will get you where you're longing to be And there will be a very, very small percentage of you Who will be able to make your way all the way to the top of this thing And if you do And if you're fortunate enough to have your eyes open to the truth, do you know what you will find when you get up here? Nothing. You'll find nothing. You'll find that what Jesus said is true. Greatness doesn't exist up here. That it was all the way down there, and you passed it while you were clamoring for the top. And worse than that, you may have passed up the kingdom itself. So how do we fight against that? Let me explain to you real quick what I'm not saying before I move into that. I'm not saying that you can't move up this ladder. I'm not saying that you can't be successful. I I believe that God created us to, to put excellence into our work to put creativity into the things we do just like him. And oftentimes, a natural byproduct of hard work and excellence and creativity is success. Oftentimes, you're going to move forward when you work hard and when you use your gifts and those things. It's going to happen. That's totally okay. Just don't confuse that with greatness. Just don't think that that's making you what you were supposed to be. So I won't tell you that you you cannot move up this ladder. But I also won't tell you that this is harmless. I also won't tell you that this has no bearing on your ability to see true greatness. Because the truth of the matter is our enemy is crafty. And he has the ability to use every bit of success and advancement in our lives, even in good and right and healthy things, and to use those things and turn them against us. And if you're not careful... What you'll discover is that all of these things you've got, your really good career and your retirement fund and your education and even your good things like your solid marriage or your well-adjusted kids or your godly living, all of those things the devil will use to worship or to whisper into your ears, you did this. By your strength, by your effort, by your goodness, by your determination is how you got here. And not only are those statements wrong, they're poison. Because the more we buy into that lie that it was me who got me here and this is the point of my life anyway, the more we buy into that, the more blind we become to our true condition. That in reality we are needy, and dependent children with no real clout of our own, dependent on him. So what is the remedy? The remedy is not beating ourselves up every day. The remedy for humility and to break away from pride is not to try to pretend like you're bad at stuff when you're not. That's called false humility. When someone compliments you on something and you just have to say, oh no, oh no, not me. It's not legitimate. That's not real. That's not what we're talking about. No, God has gifted you with unique gifts and it's okay to be good in those things. It's okay to know that you're good in those things. We're not talking about pretending that you're an awful person when you're not. The remedy lies in a consistent, very real decision to move myself to the bottom to every day regularly decide to serve the people around me, to in my house and in my workplace do the things that nobody else wants to do. To rather than clamoring for the praise of men, be fast and quick to praise others, to, to be grateful to God for the gifts that he's given to others and not just me. And maybe even more importantly, the remedy lies in seeing God for who he is and seeing myself in light of that. The remedy is singing the Revelation song. The remedy is digging into this word and seeing God declare who he is in all his glory. The remedy is confessing my sin to God and to my brothers and sisters. The remedy is seeing my own pitiful condition in light of him and all that he is. The remedy is recognizing the truth about myself and living from that truth, that I am made in the image of God, beautiful and glorious for that reason, but broken and hopelessly dependent on him. Jesus says that the way to up is down. The way to the front is to move to the back. The way to strength and power is weakness. And may our eyes and hearts be open to see that truth for what it is. And unless we humble ourselves like children, we will never be great. We will not get to partake in this kingdom. May he do that mercy, give us that mercy to see things as they are. We pray for that, and we'll close. Dear God, we are at your mercy. Whether we see it or not, it's, it's not so much a matter of intentionally lowering ourselves as much as recognizing our low condition. Whether we know it or not, we depend on you for every breath we take. That our mouths are crafted by you. Our hands and feet are yours. And that we bring nothing nothing good and worthwhile to the table when it comes to you, that everything good in this relationship is you and everything good that we have and do is you. Lord, I pray for this mercy that as we swim in a culture that preaches self-sufficiency and and self-advancement, God, that you would give us eyes to see the truth, that you would deliver us from that lie and that you would build in your people a heart of humility like your son I ask you that in the name of Jesus, amen.